Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, national political reporter for the Associated Press, Juana Summers, and Washington Post political reporter, Ben Ferris. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. I always say, oh, we made it through the week, but this week... I'm so proud that we made it to the weekend. Hello, guests. How are y'all? Hey, Sam. How's it going? We made it. That's all I can say. We made it through the week. <laughs> Juana Summers, political reporter for the AP. Ben Terrace, features reporter covering politics for the Washington Post. How much has this week aged you both? <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that with a straight face, to be completely honest. Okay. Yeah, I feel old. I feel old. I just feel, like, slightly broken. <laughs> like... Like, I got to put the pieces back together. Anyway, we'll have some fun this hour and do just that. I uh, got to start out by telling you folks about this song. Usually, I pick a song based on some music news or whatever I'm into. But this week, this song was actually selected by Ancestry.com. It's called Secret in the Dark by a Greek pop singer named Monica. I like it. There's a secret in the dark, eating light behind the faces. I like it because it's funky. But the story behind this song and how it came to this show is really, really strange. So, have you heard um, Ancestry.com has partnered with Spotify? No. <laughs> you didn't know about this? I didn't. I guess I dropped off the radar for that one. Okay. So, this streaming music service has partnered with Ancestry.com to make customized playlists based on your DNA. Wow. That's amazing. Is it amazing or creepy? Yeah, both amazingly creepy. Yeah. So I refuse to take part in such things, but I convinced one of my coworkers, Andrew, uh, to share his DNA results. We made the Spotify playlist based on those results. Uh, his top ethnicities and regions are Italian, Greek, the Balkans, and Germanic Europe. So one of the songs that Spotify gave him was this Greek pop song by a Greek pop star. I feel like I get some solid prints. I mean... I'm just really black. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> well, so I, like, just on a whim went to the website where you can make the playlist and I pretended to know what my categories were. So I typed in, like, West African, this, this, that. And it gave me, like, West African music that I never heard of. Hmm. Uh, and I wanted to identify with it, but I was just like, I was hoping they would give me Little John. <laughs> <laughs> Alas. Uh, 10,000 people have already signed up to do this, and they have made their ethnicity playlists. Listeners, if you're out there and you've done so, send me your playlist. I'm really curious. With that, uh, Juana and Ben are with me to look back on this big, crazy week of news, culture, and everything else. We're going to start the show as we do every week, and I have my guests describe their week of news in only three words. Full disclosure, we're taping this first thing Friday morning. By the time you hear this, uh, more and more and more news will have happened. But, Juana, as of now, I believe you can do this. What are your three words? <sighs> Thanks for having faith in me. Um, <laughs> so my three words on this very long week are women are angry. I think the biggest thing that I saw this week, I spent Thursday on Capitol Hill during the testimonies of Judge Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford. And I spent time before that out in suburban swing districts across the country. Mm -hmm. And what I've heard on both sides of the aisle is women who are outraged. and About what? They're outraged about the fact on the Democratic side of the aisle, and some Republicans too, I have to say, 
that Republicans have put forward a nominee who has been alleged of sexual abuse and they're not willing to give a full hearing to see an FBI investigation into that. One of the things I found really interesting, though, is I spoke with two Republican women who run a PAC that supports moderate Republican candidates. And they Mm -hmm. were telling me one of the things they feel most frustrated about is that their party doesn't have more women in leadership and that there aren't more women at the table having conversations when crucial moments that I personally feel reverberate for decades are happening. Well, I mean, you have this great story out this week in the AP about the GOP's problem with women ahead of the midterms. And the numbers are kind of staggering. There are a little bit over 600 women who are running for Congress or statewide office this year. And you found that fewer than two in 10 of them are GOP. That's right. And the other thing that's really interesting here is that if you look at the congressional landscape in particular at a number of these competitive races, not only is there a gap in how many Republicans are running for Congress and other statewide offices, the Republicans also stand to lose a number of the women that they already have representing statewide offices and on Capitol Hill. Mm. Now, Ben, you were there too, right? I on was, the Hill. yeah. Yep. What did you see out there? Well, it was this kind of two-part day. I mean, both literally in terms of how you know the hearings were held and that, that first there was Dr. Ford and then later in the day was Kavanaugh. And the day really felt divided a- along those lines. It was very quiet and, and kind of eerily so in the in the morning. I tried to talk to Republican senators in the hallway. And these are guys who like to talk a lot, usually. I mean, they love to hear their own voices. And for some reason, nobody wanted to say anything. They all wanted to listen. Mm. And they wanted to listen so badly that they even ceded their role on the hearing uh, to Prosecutor Mitchell from, from Arizona and let her do the questioning on their behalf. And so... They kind of just had to sit there awkwardly while the proceedings happened in front of them. Yeah, I think Republicans realized that it what the, the visual wasn't going the way they wanted it to, and so they just kind of grabbed the reins back themselves. You can only keep senators quiet for so long, really. That is, a, that is a true statement, yeah. Ben. <laughs> so my question with all of this is like, how does it affect? key demos of voters ahead of the midterms. I think the big question lots of folks are asking is how are white suburban women going to vote this November? That will be a big predictor of who takes back the House or Senate or who who keeps the House or Senate. Do we have any way of knowing what white suburban women voters are thinking in the aftermath of these hearings? Are they seeing themselves in Dr. Blasey Ford? Are they seeing their husbands or, or their sons in, in Brett Kavanaugh? Do we know? So one of the things that I realized, so I spent some time in Virginia's 10th congressional district, and that's the district that Barbara Comstock, the Republican, is defending against a state senator who's challenging her. And I spoke to several women there, and and many of them were, I think, in their 60s, 50s and 60s. And one of the things that was really striking to me is a woman who was asking me, she's like, if what Dr. Ford said happened to her, that is horrendous and it's unacceptable. But is it fair to judge a man's entire life and the arc of his entire career by a thing that he did when he was a high schooler? And mm-hmm. so I think the question maybe is a little bit more nuanced. What do suburban women think I think is incredibly important. But I also found in my reporting, at least, there seemed to be a stark generational divide on how people view this. Yeah, I think we all can agree Regardless of party affiliation, age, part of the country, I feel like everyone feels a little bit slimier and nastier after this week. I think it's tough. And I think that one of the things that I walked away with seeing is just my I don't know if Ben can say the same, but my inbox at least has been flooded with stories from women who saw something of themselves and what they heard in this testimony. And I think Mm. that 
if there's anything positive to be gleaned from this, it's that we're having a conversation about things that we weren't before in a really powerful way. And hearing, I don't know if you guys listened to the C-SPAN callers who were calling in and recounting stories of their own assaults. There was a woman who was talking about being assaulted when she was in the second grade and being too scared to tell anybody until she was far older. Mm. And I think that if we're having those conversations, I think that's at least one positive takeaway from all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ben Terrace, what are your three words? Well, while watching the uh, the hearing yesterday, near near the end of it, Lindsey Graham said, "This is hell," and I was tempted to try to make that my three words. But you I can have do that. I have a different three words. All right, my three words are Trump being Trump, because um, it might seem like you know decades ago at this point, but it was only on Wednesday that the president held this rambling eighty-one minute press conference that felt like a real throwback to Trump. At his, you know, oh, Trump yeah. being the most Trump he's ever been. And this uh, was after his awkward appearance at the UN uh-huh. where he was literally laughed at. Yeah. And that came up in this in this press conference because everything came up in this press conference. It, 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 no one knew exactly what to expect. Um, you know, he was, you know, leaving the door open to, you know, if the Kavanaugh hearing didn't go well, then maybe he would pull the nomination, which meant that everybody who watched the Kavanaugh hearing had to kind of watch it through his eyes, which, of course, mm-hmm. is like a reality TV show eyes. I mean, it's, you know, it, it became the kind of thing where he's doing what he did to get elected, basically. He's putting and on a show. He's putting on a show. And, and you know. I spent some time for a story over the summer with Kellyanne Conway. And oh, when yeah. I, yeah. This is, wait, we got to pause to say, all of our <laughs> listeners, you must go read this story now. Uh, ben, you were able to not just profile Kellyanne Conway, senior White House advisor, but you also profiled in the same story her husband. Uh, and this is a house divided. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. He, uh, George Conway, hates Donald Trump, and she loves Donald Trump, and it's uh, it's been an issue for the two of them. But in, in talking to her, you know, one of the things that didn't make it into the story, but in talking to her, she said that she's been trying to push the president to do more stuff like this, to, you know, he... This is what to do he, more of this. Yeah, this is what he likes. He likes to kind of mix it up with reporters. He likes to get on the phone with reporters. He used to call in to Fox News and just, you know, talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. And Trump being Trump is the three words because back in when he was running, there was kind of this mantra, which is let Trump be Trump. And that's how he ran this campaign. And, you know, all this stuff, it's clear that Trump, like everybody, is sort of like already thinking about 2020. And, you know, there was reports in the Washington Post that his campaign is already looking at campaign headquarters real estate in Arlington, Virginia. Like, it's huh. this is happening. Yeah. And this was sort of like, all right, now we're seeing, I mean, maybe nothing has really changed. And this was just kind of the, the apotheosis of all that we've seen. But it felt like an even crazier moment than yeah. you're used to seeing at this point. Mm. Uh, Juana, Ben, I have three words. What you got? And they are from the other side of the country, not D.C., uh, from Silicon Valley, and they are tech behaving badly. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, like, I haven't, and I'm not sure if you have actually seen a positive headline about big tech in the last, gosh, year. Oh, no. <laughs> mm, no. It's just like all of their stories are bad stories. There are two that really gave me pause this week. One, uh, your favorite tech CEO, Elon Musk, he was officially sued by the SEC this week. Uh, yeah. Like, sued. So this was all over his tweet from a few weeks ago saying that he wanted to take his company Tesla private. 
The SEC said in their suit against him, Musk's false and misleading public statements and omissions caused significant confusion and disruption in the market for Tesla stock and resulting harm to investors. Then the SEC goes on to say that they are asking the court to ban Musk from acting as an officer or director of any publicly traded company. Yeah, even a genius can be an idiot, right? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, second headline. This is even crazier from Silicon Valley. Uber has to pay $148 million to settle claims over their cover-up of a data breach back in 2016. But here's the thing. We've come to find out since that data breach when hackers stole private information from Uber on some 25 million customers. uh, Uber didn't report that theft, which is required by law. They paid the hackers $100,000 in late 2016. And it wasn't until like a year later that the Uber CEO was like, yeah, actually, y'all's data was stolen. Oh, man. Oh, no. (laughs) Juana, what tech companies do you still believe in? After this, not many. Gosh. (laughs) I don't know. Let's see. I'm going to get my... I don't know, Ancestry.com and Spotify are teaming up and they're going to analyze my DNA. I can't trust <laughs> Uber. I can't. I guess I'm not getting a Tesla, although it probably wasn't anywhere because I'm a journalist. Yeah. Uh, things are not great, y'all. Things are not things great. Things are not great. <laughs> I don't know who on Facebook is a Russian bot. Same with Twitter. Who do I trust? I guess we're going back to carrier pigeons. <laughs> All typewriters and vinyl and carrier pigeons and hipsters will finally be happy. <laughs> uh, coming up, I talk with the writer Annie Lowry about a thing called universal basic income. It's this idea of the government paying everybody a fixed income. Everybody, whether they work or not. Uh, we talk about how that would work and if we should ever expect a thing like that in the U.S. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from National Geographic and the new film Free Solo from the directors of Maru. Hailed by critics as one of the most arresting documentaries of the year and a stunning real-world thriller, Free Solo is the breathtaking portrait of climber Alex Honnold as he prepares to achieve his lifelong dream, climbing the face of the world's most famous rock, the 3,200-foot El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, without a rope. Free Solo is in theaters starting September 28th. Support also comes from Netflix and their upcoming film, Hold the Dark, a gripping psychological thriller directed by Jeremy Solnier. Revenge and horror unfold in the treacherous Alaskan wilderness when a retired wolf expert is summoned to investigate a child's disappearance. A riveting examination of human nature and the mysteries of the wilderness. Starring Jeffrey Wright, Alexander Skarsgård, and Riley Keough. Watch the new film, Hold the Dark, now only on Netflix. Ever find yourself saying, that happened this week? Us too. All the time. I'm Tamara Keith, host of the NPR Politics Podcast, where we follow the political twists and turns and break down what it all means. Find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests Juana Summers, national political reporter for the AP, covering Democratic politics, and Ben Terrace, feature reporter for the Washington Post, covering national politics. Um, gosh, this is a week where I feel like I need to do my duty and check in with every reporter covering politics. Are y'all okay? <laughs> we'll get through it. Yeah, yeah, it's really great that it's Friday. <laughs> Honestly, it's been it's been exhausting. I mean, not just for political reporters. I think everybody watching has got to be exhausted by this. Yeah. 
I feel like it's just been really relentless. I was talking to some people last night that just were saying that they don't know how people like you and I and Ben do what we do because they just spent one day just staring at the news nonstop. And they're just like, how do you do this every single day without it just completely draining you? And I don't know that I have a good answer to that question. Well, I mean, it does. Maybe you just say it does completely drain you. <laughs> I think that might be right. <laughs> what was y'all's detox Thursday night? Um, I, so fun fact, I play in a competitive pinball league. Oh, I know so that. So I just, I you, you. you know this about me. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. I don't know if all your listeners know this about me. So I just went and thrashed around on some pinball machines for three or four hours after I got home. Also, my detox is not living in DC. Hey, Ben. Uh, well, I have a 11 month old kid at home. So Why my, are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. So my detox was going home to little Ralph and having him throw food at me while I tried to feed him. And <laughs> little Ralph. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty great. All right, time for the next topic. We're going to talk about money. You want to talk about something called universal basic income. Have either of you heard of this? Yeah. Okay. Define it for us, Ben. Oh, no. No way. <laughs> I don't want to define anything. I've heard of it. I don't know okay. all the ins and outs. All right. Basically, it means that uh, everybody gets a regular paycheck from the government. Think like a 1000 bucks a month. Uh, and everyone gets it, whether they're working or not, disabled or able-bodied. It doesn't matter. And you can spend the money on whatever you want to spend it on. Um, more than 100 low- and middle-income countries are doing something like this, just giving people money with no strings attached. Um, there has been increased chatter in certain portions of our country about possibly doing something like this here in America. To wrap my head around it all and see if it could ever happen here, I talked to Annie Lowry. She reports on economic policy for The Atlantic, and she has a new book out all about universal basic income. It is literally called Give People Money. Annie Lowry, hi, how are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. In the book, you basically say, think of it as the government giving everyone a check for $1,000 a month, regardless of their age, employment, disability, whatever. Everyone gets a check. That is a simple definition, but give me your clinical definition of what exactly UBI is. Yeah, so the basic idea is that the government is giving everybody money. There's sort of a sister idea, which is for some people even more compelling, which is that the government is going to guarantee that everybody makes it over a certain line. So probably the poverty line. Okay. And, you know, the grand idea here is both that you are going to increase the consumption of relatively poor families and that you're going to provide a measure of insurance. So a lot of families, even if they're middle income, middle class, they have kind of lumpy income or they have sudden bills, suddenly lose a job, suddenly need to make a big payment, uh, suddenly get sick. And we don't have that kind of form of social insurance in, in this country that really buffers people from those shocks. So the idea is that a UBI does both. So it's not just social welfare. It's also social insurance. As soon as you say something like give everyone a check from the government every month, a lot of Americans are just saying stop, hold up. Doesn't this incentivize people to work less? So it does on the margin, but perhaps less than you would think. Okay. Um, so one idea with UBI is that you wouldn't give people so much money that they would stop working. There's there's surely an amount of money that people would stop working if you gave it to them. Does so it like, vary place to place within the country? Probably, yeah. Okay. And it probably depends on your age, your education level, lots of other things, maybe mm -hmm. your disability status. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at $500 or $1,000 a month, the effect would be pretty small. And the kinds of people who would stop working are students who would stay in school longer, parents who would choose to spend time with their kids, older people who would retire early. 
So what you tend to see is not that people stop working entirely, but what economists, it's kind of an awkward term, work effort goes down a little bit. <laughs> so the amount of hours in aggregate that people spend working goes down. But again, often it's for like kind of socially beneficial reasons, right? Like we want kids to stay in school. We often want parents to spend time with their kids. So like maybe that's not the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If everyone gets a check regardless, that means... Mark Zuckerberg gets a check. That makes me mad. Yes. Is that defensible? So, yeah, I think that the way that I think about this, at least, is that the government takes money and gives money to everybody. Hmm. You know, really high income people benefit from government programs, too. It just tends to be that those programs are tax breaks as opposed to spending programs. Hmm. And there's a really great political scientist named Suzanne Mettler who studies this. Hmm. But one of the studies that she did is she looks at people across the income spectrum and she asks them, do you benefit from government programs? Mm -hmm. And low income people who have to go bring all their documentation and meet with a social worker and pee in a cup in order to get SNAP benefits are like, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. I, that is really obvious yeah. to me. Yeah. Whereas high income people are much more likely to say like, no, I've, I've never benefited from a government program in my life. As they're getting like a mortgage deduction or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And, and they do. Yeah. How do you pay for this? Especially in a place like America where <laughs> there's no way that Congress would agree on this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. It's hard to imagine them going for like a big, full fat UBI. Mm -hmm. But there's lots of more marginal programs that would, I think, have really profound benefits in people's lives. So one idea is to eliminate poverty through the tax code. Hmm. That is often done with something called a negative income tax. As in the government gives you money if you make a low enough income? Precisely. Okay. Um, doing that would cost about $200 billion a year. That's nothing. That's okay. that's like nothing in comparison to how much we spend on other things. We just boosted military spending by $100 billion dollars. Basically, nobody noticed. <laughs> and so um, another thing that people talk about is a universal grant for kids to eliminate child poverty. Hmm. Um, that's getting rid of the most deleterious type of poverty that we have here in the United States, arguably. Again, like I'm not saying it's not expensive, but it certainly doesn't break the bank. I, I think we're in this hyperpolarized climate in which it's hard to imagine anything happening on bipartisan terms. But you have a Democratic Party that's moving to the left and embracing really big ideas. And I would be surprised if there wasn't something along these lines um, to provide more security to families that even 10 years after the last recession are still feeling really insecure. Um, I love how deftly you incorporated the word deleterious in your answer, <laughs> for one. Uh, but secondly, is this an idea that's just for liberals? Are any folks here besides liberals talking about this? Yeah, so this has a really strong conservative lineage. Hmm. So, like, Richard Nixon thought about doing this really? stuff. Yeah, Nixon ran all of these big experiments on negative income taxes and hmm. then didn't do it because he had other issues. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> um, this has a strong conservative lineage because, like, this is way simpler than a lot of the things that the government does. Even programs like SNAP, which is food stamps, kind of complicated, lots of paternalism. And a lot lots of bureaucracy. Yeah, lots of bureaucracy. Lots of conservatives have been like, the government needs to stop it with the nanny stating and should just send people cash. I was reading in your book that you say Silicon Valley is kind of behind this. Yeah, they are obsessed with it. They are, I think, obsessed with and guiltily fear that they might be 
eliminating everybody's job. Oh, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's let's imagine a world in which three things are happening. So GDP is going up. We have strong growth rates. Productivity is going up. So like we're getting more efficient and effective as an economy. And also unemployment is going up because robots are replacing humans. Mm. This is not what's happening currently at yeah. all. But we can imagine that world. And so we don't have solutions for that world. Our unemployment insurance system is temporary. And so in that world, you, you know, what would people do? One of their answers is a UBI, which, you know, it means that you could probably keep people afloat. But then it raises this question of like, do pe- people want to work? They really do. Yeah. Um, and so I think that you would still have a lot of social unrest, even if you were paying people, if you just had like 40 percent of the adult population not kind working. of sitting around. Yeah. Because yeah. what do you when you're not working? You start trouble. Exactly. <laughs> Idle hands and all yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> You're starting to see some UBI happen. Like there are cities that are trying it. Yep. You know, Stockton's probably the most visible example right now. Stockton, California, they're trying yeah. it. Is that actually the way that UBI happens if it's going to happen? It might not happen federally. It'll happen city by city, place by place. I mean, so yes, Chicago, tons of interest in this. Really? Stockton. Trying something out. Yeah. yeah. San Francisco and Oakland, lots of interest in this. The state of Hawaii. Lots of interest huh. in this. And so, yes. Okay, if, if Hawaii does it, I'm going. I know. All of us are moving. <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. Oh, yeah. um, the issue, so it's hard for states and uh, cities to do this. And the reason is they have to balance their budgets. <laughs> there's not a lot of dollars lying around, right? Yeah. Whereas the federal government can deficit spend. And there's just much more money. They have the federal income tax lever. They can do whatever they want. So my personal theory is that the way this might happen is during a recession, there tends to be interest in piloting things. Hmm. So actually, during the last recession, there was a program and they gave uh, cities and states money to um, use basically as they saw fit. And a lot of them did it to subsidize jobs. So if people were going to get laid off, they'd Mm -hmm. go to these companies, they'd say, "Okay, we're going to subsidize your workers so you don't lay them off. Hugely effective. Mm -hmm. So like maybe in the next recession, there's going to be some program that says, hey, states and cities, If you want to trial just cash payments, let's do it. That was Annie Lowry. She writes for The Atlantic. Uh, She covers economic policy, and her book is called Give People Money. Uh, Ben, Juana, you both cover politics, U.S. politics. Have you seen UBI discussed on any campaign trail? Yeah, I mean, it comes up. Um, I was out in in Kansas when uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Socialist uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out to to stump for a couple of of, uh, lefty candidates out in Kansas. And because they were out there, it was the kind of thing that was being asked of the candidates a lot. And it's I think people are having a hard time deciding how they want to answer it all the time, because even if they can see it as good policy in places, especially like Kansas, it can be a tough sell to tell people like, hey, we're just going to be... Uh, you know, throwing money at you and, and can we have your vote? It, it becomes one of those things that culturally is, is a difficult subject. Yeah. Juana, do you see it? Um, I haven't seen it as much, but I do think that the idea itself in places like the Midwest, where I'm from, I grew up in Kansas City, like it strikes at the kind of the antithesis of the idea of like pulling oneself up by their bootstraps of working hard to achieve more of trying to better yourself constantly and by that increase your income. So I do think it may be a little bit of a cultural clash for some people as they're trying to wrap their heads around it. My big question is just like, all right, if you're giving someone $1,000 a month in San Antonio, Texas, and $1,000 a month in New York City, someone's getting the raw end of that deal. <laughs> like, you got to adjust all this for cost of living, et cetera. 
I still have major questions about it, is what I'm saying. Yeah, good luck making it an easier sell when you're like, if you live in New York, you get $10,000. <laughs> Sorry, folks that live in <laughs> the Midwest. Those city yeah. slickers. <laughs> anyway, uh, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game. Uh, who said that? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hinge. Hinge promotes healthy relationships. Hinge features include deeper and more thoughtful profiles so people can lead with their personality. Hinge encourages meaningful conversations, and their Your Turn feature identifies who initiates the conversation, so there's no awkward silences. Hinge is built on likes, not swipes, for quality connections. Download Hinge in the Apple Store or Google Play. Support also comes from Legacy Recordings, presenting Paul Simon's new album, In the Blue Light. Fresh perspectives on 10 of his favorite songs, including Darling Lorraine, Renee and Georgette Magritte, and One Man Ceiling, available at Amazon now. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I can cry. I just talked to John Batiste, music director and band leader on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He did the interview at the piano. I can slide. You can find it now in the Fresh Air feed. All right, before we get back to the show, i uh, got a favor to ask you. If you're enjoying this conversation and you're in the L.A., Southern California area, I really think you would enjoy seeing us do this kind of thing live. On Tuesday, October 2nd, uh, I will be in partnership with NPR member station KPCC in Pasadena on stage talking with comedian Guy Branham. He is one of the funniest people alive. I mean it. I mean it. I mean it. Uh, He has a memoir out called My Life as a Goddess, and he has some really interesting thoughts on how the comedy world needs to change in light of the Me Too movement. All right. Don't miss out. It'll be a good time. There'll be laughs. There'll be uh, some drinks as well. Tickets and info are at kpcc.org slash in person. Uh, that link is also in our episode data, too. With that, back to the show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests. They both cover politics. Juana Summers does so for the AP, and Ben Terrace covers politics for The Washington Post. They both have had a week, but now I'm going to lighten the mood for them with my favorite game. Who said that? All right, Juana's played this game before because she's been on this show before. Ben, this is your first time you scared. Oh, I'm terrified. You should be. Yeah, I I really am. (laughs) (laughs) The game is quite simple. I share a quote from the week. Uh, You guys have to guess who said that or at least get the story it refers to, get a keyword. Uh, The great thing about this game is that the winner gets absolutely nothing. Mm. Here's the first quote, and you can tell me who it's about. Just get a keyword. Here it is. Usually, if you are a member of the royal family or a dignitary, you have a member of staff to open and close a car door for you. Ooh, I know this one. Go. It's Meghan Markle. Yes. People got super excited because she closed her own car door. Excited and also angry. This is why I love the UK, because they are just, like, weird about all the royal stuff. So, um, Meghan Markle, the UK's newest duchess, uh, at some point this week, she closed her own car door behind her. Uh, Apparently, she was arriving at the Royal Academy of Arts to attend her first solo event since becoming a royal. She got out of the car, and someone opened the door for her, but then she closed it for herself. So the BBC had a story about it, and in this article about it, they wrote, quote, Earlier this month, one U.S. journalist even claims to have seen Meghan in a London street clearing up after her dog. However, it was not verified to have been the Duchess herself. That sounds fun, though, to lose your mind over that, over, you know, something fun. (laughs) 
Uh, Juana, you have one point. This is not going to go well for me. You've got this. I believe in you, Ben. I do. Ready for the next quote? Let's yeah, let's do it. it. Okay. Nothing will ever be scarier than that terror to bliss. You're happy the cord worked. Then the whole Grand Canyon is mine. Who said that? Someone famous who did a big thing this week to mark their birthday. I got nothing. In my opinion, the most famous movie star in the world. Will Smith. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> really had to help y'all with that. I did you see this, Ben? Famous did something. Uh, maybe, like, on Twitter it, like, caught the periphery of my, of my vision. Yeah, so Will Smith, one, turned 50 this week. We're all so old. Uh, but he bungee jumped into the Grand Canyon to celebrate his birthday. He jumped out of a helicopter, and he did all of this on, like, social media and YouTube. Would y'all ever do this? I almost would rather jump out of an airplane and, and with a parachute than a bungee jump. It seems like you get so close to the ground with a bungee jump. It's too scary. I value my life. Zero percent chance. <laughs> I also just love to take time to marvel at the ongoing strangeness of Will Smith. Uh, he's kind of stopped making movies a little bit. He's become his Instagram star. And he's putting out still really weird music. Um, did you guys hear a song from last year? No. He had this EDM song called Get Lit. <laughs> We ain't part of them negatrons, we transform and get lit. We ain't part of them negatrons, we... Will, what you doing? That's not real. That is Will Smith. <laughs> Come All a long I'm saying way. is, if he likes it, I love it. I'm glad you survived. Happy 50th, Will Smith. Um, all right, I think the game is tied. Oh, boy. Here we go. For all the marbles. Final quote. I definitely have mixed emotions about this final run. Las Vegas has become my home, and performing at the Coliseum at Caesars Palace has been a big part of my life for the past two decades. Who said that? The two decades threw me. Who's been in Vegas for two decades? Celine Dion. Look at Ben Terrence. <laughs> you did it. All right. Celine Dion is leaving her Vegas act. I know, that's I'm sad. sad, too. No, that's a bummer. Right? Yeah. Uh, she's been in residency at Caesars Palace for a while. She's been performing in Vegas since 2003. Uh, in June of next year, that'll all come to an end. She's having a final run of shows. Uh, I know, for one, I'll miss her. It's taking everything I have to not say, but your heart will go on. But will it? <laughs> but will it? I don't know. All right. Um, does that mean that Ben won? I guess so. I'm just mad because I wrote Celine's name down on my notepad, but it didn't come out of my mouth. Oh, <laughs> Wait, you? Why? Why did you write Celine? It's true. She's showing. You were writing really, during the game. It's I, true. I was writing down names because I was like, "Is it Celine?" I was like, "No, Britney Spears." Just throw been it out. Long you, enough. Next time, just throw it out. I have Let's, performance anxiety. This is very difficult for me. <laughs> I'm willing to split the winnings. With no, you. it's fine. It's a very big pot. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Anyway, that concludes who said that. Ben, you won. Congratulations. You get nothing. Thank you. All right, now it's time to end the show as we do every week we ask our listeners to share the best things that happened to them all week we encourage folks to brag let's take a listen hi sam this is regina from boulder colorado and the best part of my week is having a late season river paddle boarding session through the upper colorado in this beautiful colorful fall day in the background of mountains in this gorgeous canyon i hope you guys are having a great week too Hi Sam, this is Joey down in Sydney, Australia. And the best thing that happened to me this week was watching my wife, Maria, receive her doctoral diploma for her research on Sydney rock oysters. 
I performed at my first ever open mic without fainting or vomiting. The best thing that happened to me all week is after a day of fussing and being difficult, my little six week old baby took a two and a half hour nap. Today, my boyfriend surprised me by researching, buying, and installing a sound system specifically so I can listen to your podcast at a normal level. Hi, Sam. It's Megan from Michigan. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that my family was reunited with our 14-year-old little poodle mix who wandered off and had been missing for almost six days. Hey, Sam. This is Matthew from Madrid, Spain. The best thing that happened to me this week is that my daughter has finally been hired by a hospital in the U.S. So at last, all of her hard work is paying off with a really great job. So take good care of her, America. She's coming soon. Hey, Sam. This is Megan calling from Oberlin, Ohio. The best part of my week was getting to be in the federal courthouse with my wife as she took the oath of citizenship being there with our daughter and family and friends. I cried so much, happy tears that we're finally at this moment. It's pretty amazing and I am grateful. Thank you so much for your show. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good work. Take care. Bye. Oh, many thanks to all the voices you heard there. Regina, Joey, Liz, Michelle, Katie, Megan. Please send me photos of that cute poodle. Uh, Matthew and another Megan, I want to see photos of your wedding. Uh, we listen to all of these that come in. We enjoy them every week. Keep them coming. If you want to send me uh, your best thing from your week, you can do so at any time. Just email me the sound of your voice at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. Many thanks to my guest, Juana Summers, political reporter for the AP. Thank you for your time. Happy to do it, Sam. Ben Terrace, political reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you as well, sir. Yeah, my pleasure. This was delightful. Thanks to this song, Secret in the Dark, by Monica. Thanks to my colleague, Andrew, for sharing his Ancestry.com DNA and his Spotify playlist made from that DNA to give us this wonderful Greek pop song. Uh, this week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, uh, and Kumari Devarajan. Uh, Steve Nelson is our director of programming, and our editor is Jordana Hochman. Our big boss is NPR's VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Uh, listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning for my chat with Ike Barinholtz. You know him from The Mindy Project. He played Morgan Tookers. Uh, you know him from Eastbound and Down. He has a new movie out very soon. It's called The Oath. It is a satirical political thriller that is perfectly matched for the current times that we find ourselves in. He tells me how that film got made and what it was like to have Tiffany Haddish play his on-screen wife. With that, thank you both. Have a great weekend. You too. Yeah, have a great one. Thanks for listening. Till next time, talk soon. Ow!